The Sunday Review with Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Sunday Review. As we all try to be more energy efficient, consumer champion Angelica Bell will be telling us where to focus our efforts. We'll be finding out about the CDC Foundation's drive to eliminate cancer as part of World Health Day and veterinary nurse Shauna Walsh is here to explain how we can brush up on our pet first aid. Samantha Day will be talking to TV medic Zoe Williams about the little things that make life worth living. Carrie Overton finds out how an interest in music led to singing in public for 16-year-old Sophie Harris. And Norman Wong discovers how the worlds of science and music have combined to create the perfect lullaby. All coming up in this edition. New research shows that more than 80% of us are making a conscious effort to be more energy efficient when it comes to using our home appliances, either by monitoring our usage more closely or buying new appliances or gadgets to drive down our bills. To tell us more about the research and where we should be focusing our efforts, I'm delighted to be joined by TV presenter and consumer champion Angelica Bell and Fleur Lawton from Smart Energy GB. Welcome to the show, both of you. Fleur, if I can start with you, can you explain how we're trying to reduce our energy costs at the moment? Well, energy costs have been sort of front of mind now for quite some time and everything's gone up. So people are far more aware of what they're using, how they're using it. And smart meters are really helping with that because what a smart meter does is it comes with a small screen in your home that actually shows you in pounds and pence how much you're spending. And that gives you a much better understanding of actually what you're using. So we're getting far more interested in actually um, the devices that we've got in our homes. You know, are they energy efficient? If we're looking at new ones, we're looking at different things now. You know, are they are they cheaper to run or not? Um, and we're seeing that people are sort of starting to change their energy habits because they're understanding things more and, and, you know, they're looking at ways that they can save money and save energy. Now, the research discovered that people are investing in new household gadgets to help them save energy. What sort of gadgets are people telling you that they're buying? So there are lots of different things. Um, so an air fryer is a big thing at the minute in the kitchen. So using an air fryer rather than using the cooker can save you around £45 a year. Um, and it is great. I, I, I admit I'm one of those that's also bought an air fryer. And it's been really useful for us because it saves me having to put the cooker on just for one item, like just one piece of garlic bread or just one chicken breast. I'm, you know, I'm using less energy. It's a smaller system, not as much to heat. So you're not, it's not costing you as much. So it, it gives you a bit more flexibility. The other things people are looking at are things like drying racks. So instead of using a tumble dryer, which we know, you know, takes a lot of energy uh, to do that, they're looking at different ways of of drying clothes as well. Or, you know, on a day on a day when it's dry and fine outside, then actually hanging hanging the washing out as well. And again, that visibility that smart meters give you over your energy use really helps you in these decisions in looking at where there are small things that you can do around the home that actually make a difference to your bill longer term. So, Angelica, it's interesting to see that people are making a conscious effort to be more energy efficient. In your view, are the changes we're making the right ones to make a difference? Well, again, that's very personal to each household and what and, and how they are, what position they're in. You know, like Fleur just said, people are much more aware of what they're spending um, and making sure that they've got enough to cover their bills. It's a, you know, it's it's a precarious time for some households, and and that is why a smart meter can really help those families that want sort of that greater predictability and accuracy when it comes to bills. You know, knowing what they're spending 
right then so that they can make those informed decisions, giving the consumer greater knowledge on the energy in their home. And it goes back again to what Fleur said about we're much more energy literate. We, we, un we want to know, we want to understand so we can make those informed choices when we want to buy new appliances or use the ones that we have in the home already. And also cut down on admin and also sending out meter readings. You know, none of that is needed. It's, it's, it's there, it's efficient and visible. So it, it's up to each individual to decide what is needed. No one's saying go out and buy new appliances. But what we're saying is the consumer can be more informed if they have a smart meter. I mean, it's really interesting because Smart Energy GB has, you know, partnered with energy, the Energy Saving Trust to create this new formula to help households assess the true efficiency of their home appliances. And that's what it's about. Can you tell us a bit more about this formula and how it works? Well, basically, it's about just seeing which, what, what appliances work, how much are you spending on it, and what could be a better alternative. We've touched on it again, you know, like opting for an electric blanket to warm yourself up as opposed to an electric heater. It's marginally more efficient, can save you around £7 per year. But remember, again, this is individual to household. If you're on your own, electric blanket is great because it warms you up. But if you're a family of four... Is heating a room of people with a heater going to be much more beneficial? So taking that into account, again, empowering the consumer. Um, an air fryer, which Fleur says she has, I don't have one. I know loads of people who swear by them. You know, is it worth going to buy that new appliance to save you in the long run? Because we do know that they could save you an average of £45 a year in energy over an electric oven. But it's making those little things like, you know, shortening your shower time, you know, just, you know, four minutes, three minutes could save a household £95 a year, lowering your combi brew flow temperature. If it's, if it's at 80, maybe go down to 60, and that could save you around £100 a year. So there's little hacks, little tips um, that Smart Energy GB have for the consumer because that's, you know, people like those little wins because they all add up, every penny counts. So smartenergygb.org, you can find out all that information. Um, and, and it's really informative and so interesting in how we can just be a little bit more on top of our, our own personal needs, our own personal finances to relieve some of that stress that has, you know, has concerned a lot of people. That's great. Angelica, Fleur, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. For more information about smart meters and some top tips on how you can be more energy efficient and save money, visit smartenergygb.org. That's smartenergygb.org. We'll post the link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. World Health Day took place a couple of weeks ago on the 7th of April. It was especially poignant this year as it marked the 75th anniversary of the founding of the World Health Organization. Norman Wong spoke to Dr Lisa Richardson and Dr Lisa Reardon from the CDC Foundation, a non-profit organisation who are encouraging us all to be aware of the warning signs of cancer and get an early diagnosis. Dr Richardson, this year's theme for World Health Day is Health for All. Can you please tell me what World Health Day means to you? Yes, Norman, I'll be happy to. So at CDC, we want to help all people be free of cancer, which sounds a little bit, you know, strange because some people get it, some people have survived it. This year's theme for WHO, Health for All, really does echo that mission. We believe all people should be free of cancer, and this can be achieved one day at a time by reducing the number of certain cancers that can be prevented, by making the right choices, helping all people get the right cancer services at the right time, and improving cancer survivors' quality of life. So can you tell us what is the Empowered Health Program? 
Smart Health is about giving people skills and knowledge to feel confident about making healthcare decisions with their providers. In this particular case, it's about making decisions about screening for cancer, treatment for cancer if you have it, and then what would you do after you survive and how to live the best life after that. So these decisions are important for both the prevention of cancer and managing a cancer diagnosis. Empowered Health includes resources on cancer prevention, treatment, and life after cancer. One of my favorite resources that can benefit anyone is a series of animated videos teaching the skills and benefits of shared decision-making. That is the skill of making a decision together with your provider, who may be the doctor, the nurse, or someone else on the healthcare team. Empowered Health also features resources for providers, such as videos, short articles, and an audio podcast series. Shared decision-making isn't a, way, a one-way street. Both doctors and patients have a role to play, so we felt it was important to create resources for both audiences. You know. Tr- Figuring out what to do with your health should be a decision between you and your provider. Yes, I understand that now much more clearly. Thank you. Dr. O'Reardon, could you please tell us about your cancer journey? Yes, sure. So I was a consultative breast surgeon, and at the age of 40, I was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer myself. And I'll put my hands up. I never examined my breasts because I didn't think it would happen to me, and I was wrong. And I had a year of chemotherapy and radiotherapy and had every treatment that I gave my patients and realized just how little I knew about what my patients went through. In 2018, my cancer came back on my chest wall that led to more surgery, meaning I had to retire. And I now spend my life educating patients and doctors about what breast cancer is really like, helping them understand what's happening to them and helping them know what kind of questions to ask. Because one thing I realized is patients are people We have lives and responsibilities, and doctors aren't just treating a cancer. They're treating everything else that goes along with it. And that's why the Empowered Health Programme with the shared decision-making is so important. Dr. O'Reardon, you now write, you give lectures, and you use social media to share public health messages. Can you tell us about your role within the Empowered Health Programme? I see my role as threefold. The first is to make sure the general public know what the signs and symptoms of cancer are and what to do if they're worried. And also to go for screening, because if we can pick up cancers at an earlier stage, patients will need less aggressive treatment and it's less likely to come back. The second thing is helping patients understand what is happening to them and empowering them to ask questions about treatment that might affect their lives that they're too embarrassed to ask. So we know they're getting the right treatment for them at that time of their lives. The third aspect for me is helping patients live after their cancer diagnosis by encouraging them to be responsible, to exercise, to eat and drink carefully and safely. They can reduce the risk of it coming back and lead a more positive life afterwards. I think that's a really powerful message. Thank you. Dr. Richardson, what advice would you give those who may be going through cancer treatments or other major health issues? So what we know is that when people feel confident about making decisions about their health, They feel more satisfied, and their decisions can lead to better health outcomes and better quality of life, feeling better about the decisions they've made. So for this reason, I encourage everyone helping people make decisions about their health to provide that information in an easy-to-understand format that they can understand. We have a tendency as healthcare providers and others to use large words, talk in, you know, circles, and not be direct. And so that's what we really want people to do as they're trying to go through their therapy. And one thing we are doing is helping people understand that it's okay to ask their providers questions 
about what's going on with their health. And what Empowered Health really does is help people understand what's going on and also help them ask those questions that are critical for their health and their health outcomes. Well, thank you both for joining me today. But before you leave us, Dr. Richardson, where can we find out more information on this? You can go to empoweredhealthoneword.org to find resources for providers and for patients. It's a wonderful resource, and you know we would highly recommend that people go there. Dr. Lisa Richardson and Dr. Liz O'Riordan telling us about the importance of screening and checking for signs of cancer. For more information on the topics they spoke about, visit empoweredhealth.org. That's empoweredhealth.org. We'll post a link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. Latest figures from leading vet charity PDSA reveal that just 10% of owners have been trained to know what to do if their pet needed first aid, including CPR. To help address this, the charity's now launched a free first aid guide that could help save an animal's life. To tell us more, I'm joined by Shauna Walsh, a veterinary nurse at PDSA. Shauna, welcome to the show. Why is it important for owners to have more understanding of pet first aid? So, pet first aid is really, really kind of a really good skill for pet owners to know. And that's because there's a really kind of critical period in between where an emergency happens to our pets and when they get to the vets, you know, that that period in between, actually the, the skills and the techniques that our pet first aid guide covers can make a huge difference. They can save a pet's life. And, you know, I think we have seen that pet owners want to know this information. So it's it's really reassuring that we're able to provide that to them. What are some of the common emergencies then that pets may face? And what are some of the basic steps that owners can take in those situations? I would say some of the most common things that we see and that are covered in our first aid guide are, you know, if a, a pet cuts their leg and the technique of being able to apply an emergency bandage to try and stem some of that bleeding, prevent contamination to that wound. And then we've also covered things like um, choking and heat stroke and the techniques that you can do to prevent that pet's condition from worsening before they seek veterinary attention but also it can help down the line with making that pet easier to treat and more cost effective to treat at the vets as well. Now I must admit that pet first aid isn't something that's crossed my mind. Do you find that many owners have misconceptions about this topic? I think so but I think it's 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 common you know pet first aid isn't something that pet owners necessarily think about with their pets you know they focus more on providing for their welfare needs and making sure they're happy and healthy so I think you know some people may perceive that pet first aid is the same as human first aid but actually it is a different skill set altogether with different things and things you need to consider. Now I guess it's not always obvious that a pet is unwell what are some of the signs that they may be in distress and how can you best respond to those situations? There's lots of different ways that our pets show us that they're unwell or injured. Some of them are obvious, you know, you may see limping or not being able to put weight on the leg, but sometimes it can be a little bit more subtle, you know, especially if the injuries are kind of internal, you might just see your pet not quite acting themselves. They might be lethargic, not wanting to eat and drink, maybe vocalizing, meowing or, or kind of barking more than normal, being withdrawn. So our pet first aid guide 
explains all of the symptoms and things that our pets do to show us when there's something wrong, um, focusing on those kind of more subtle ones as well. So how can owners get hold of a free first aid guide? So the Pet First Aid Guide is free to download from our website, which is pdsa.org.uk. And if you pop first aid or pet first aid into the search bar at the top of the site, it will bring up all of our information, including that resource to download for you. Now, I guess just like human first aid, things change. How often should pet owners refresh their knowledge? And are there any courses or training programmes available for them? There are, yes. So if after reading the first aid guide, pet owners think, oh, I, I want to practice bandaging, I want to practice CPR, because obviously that isn't something that you can practice on your own pet. You know, it's not, not really safe or fair to do that. Then there are pet first aid courses available. The best ones, um, you know, will make sure that they have the most up-to-date information because things do constantly change and new research and developments come out. So a veterinary-led one is is generally going to be uh, make sure that all the evidence is kind of researched and all the techniques are safe for both you and the pet. Now, obviously, we've been focusing on what to do if things go wrong, but are there any preventative measures that we can take to reduce the chances of our pets falling ill or being injured and therefore reduce the chance of unexpected vet treatments? Yes, that's a really good question. And something the guide covers as well is is those kind of preventive measures that you can take because, you know, putting kind of veterinary bills aside not no no pet owner wants to see their pet poorly and will do everything in their in their power to to prevent that from happening so we do have lots of tips to you know not all emergencies can be prevented of course and accidents will always happen but something as simple as you know moving your chocolate from a bottom cupboard to a top cupboard to make sure your pet can't get access to it you know making sure that you're if it's if it's warm outside you're not walking your pet in you know temperatures that are going to be too warm which could lead to heat stroke so there are lots of lots of things that pet owners can do to try and prevent the worst from happening fantastic shauna thanks so much for joining us today thank you tim as we've just been hearing pdsa's handy first aid guide offers actionable tips around how to spot things such as broken bones or if your pet's having difficulty breathing it also suggests simple ways to prevent an emergency from happening, including keeping toxic human food and medications out of paws reach, as well as how to be prepared if your pet does become unwell or injured. The guide is available online at pdsa.org.uk. That's pdsa.org.uk. We'll post a direct link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. A couple of weeks ago on her breakfast show, Samantha Day spoke to TV medic Dr Zoe Williams about the little things that make life worth living. Well, this is this is based on some um, recent research from Lint. They did a nationwide study to mark the beginning of spring and to find out what brings people happiness and what brings people joy. And I'll talk through some of them in a moment, but I think what really stood out for me is that the majority of people highlighted top of the list things that don't cost any money or cost very little money and actually are accessible um, to most of us. So the, the thing that came out on top in this study was a good night's sleep. So 51% of people said that's what makes them feel good. And that was closely followed by things like a walk on a sunny morning, a hug, 
um, a sunny and bright morning. So just seeing that as you open the curtains. Um, and, and, and yeah, I thought that was really interesting that it's these sort of simple things in life that are the things that people highlight as what makes them feel happy and brings them joy. Oh, all sorts of funny little things can bring that joy, can't it? Yeah, yeah, there were some um, more kind of surprising things or out of the blue things. So unexpected delights like finding money in a jacket pocket, 38% of people highlighted that. Um, a smile from a stranger or one of my favourites, actually, bagging, bagging a bargain in the supermarket, in the supermarket, specifically wanting something and it's on offer. Um, it does make my heart just sing a little bit, definitely makes me smile. <laughs> oh, how lovely, especially if it's chocolate. Especially if it's chocolate, yes. So, <laughs> so not surprisingly, food did feature quite heavily on this list. Um, of all the foods, chocolate came out on top. So 37% of people said that that's something that gives them joy. Um, but also cooking your favourite meal, eating cake or a Sunday roast with friends or even a freshly brewed coffee. 27% of people highlighted that. And I think often with these things, it's not just about the specific, you know, if we're thinking about chocolate or thinking about coffee, it's not just about the item or the food stuff itself. It's about the ritual that we we wrap around it. So, you know, having that coffee might be taking time out of your day, you know, stepping away from the laptop or um, actually sitting down with a friend whilst you have a coffee. And I think eating chocolate, you know, is something we really do associate with with joyous times. It's a treat. So um, definitely food to be enjoyed slowly and, and savoured um, rather than have uh, eaten in a hurry it's funny isn't it we had these uh, sort of thoughts in our head about say perhaps chocolate being the most wonderful thing to eat but it's not always that is it so we do like that but yeah. um yeah it's uh, a, a nice thought that perhaps you're going to go home and find a chocolate yeah and i think that's the thing with chocolate it's, it's not something to have every day it's not something to have as part of a you know, a snack or a meal, it is something to really have as as a treat. And, you know, especially if you have really good quality chocolate and just a small amount of it can, can, can bring you a lot of joy. But I think it's about taking the time to enjoy it because chocolate involves so many senses. It's the smell of it. It's the texture of it. As the texture changes, as it melts in the mouth, it's the taste of it. You know, it lights up that reward center in the brain. So, so it is, it is a really special Thing to enjoy so nice. enjoy in moderation too <laughs> yes but so nice to share with others with, with that as well yeah definitely and I think we do associate it with coming together don't we with with birthday parties and with with Christmas and Easter and and other celebrations usually there's there's chocolate involved so so yeah definitely something to share with others although oh. I'm not sure I'll be sharing mine <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh, sharing is caring, you know that one. <laughs> sharing is caring. I've, I've got this funny thing with chocolate. I make it last for ages. I mean, ever <laughs> since I was a little girl, my Easter eggs would last until Christmas. And then the chocolate that I got at Christmas, I'd just make it last till Easter. But my brother would eat his um, straight away. So my mum would always make me then, because I had some left, share it with my brother. So I've always had this thing about sharing my chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, how lovely. Now, um, there's been a, a survey or some research done on this, and yeah. they say that um, uh, 
this is amazing really. Um, 11 16 a.m on Saturdays is when you feel at your happiest is that right yeah so, so the, in this survey that what they've done is they've identified the the times at which Brits are most likely to feel happy and most likely to be smiling and yeah very specific time Saturday morning at 11 16 is when we are at our happiest um, with summer and spring being our favourite seasons. And I guess it makes sense for a lot of people because on a Saturday morning, you don't have to, most of us, um, although lots of people still do, but m- many of us don't have to go to work. Uh, we can have a bit of a lie-in. That time in the morning might be when we're, we're out and about. We may have gone for a walk. We might have met with a friend. We might be having a late breakfast or a brunch. So I think there are lots of reasons why around that time, sort of late morning on a Saturday, um, there's a lot of reasons to be happy for lots of people. Now, the Brits smile an average of 17 times a day. Well, I've got to admit, I've never counted. <laughs> neither, have, neither have I. Um, but yeah, smiling is actually really good for us. Um, when, when we smile, the muscles, the specific muscles on the face that we use when we smile, when those muscles contract, they send a signal to our brain that we're happy. And the brain therefore responds by releasing chemicals that make us feel happy. So the good thing about this is you can hack your own system because the brain isn't able to tell the difference between a genuine smile or a fake smile. Ah. So if you go about your day smiling at people, even if you don't really feel like it, you can end up feeling happier and obviously making lots of other people feel happy as well. Well, hopefully they smile back and that does give you that little bit of a glow that you've made somebody happy in the day. Most people do. And I've done this before. I've done little experiments because I think I live in London and it's busy and it's, you know, often public transport is very crammed and people can look a bit miserable. Um, And we do start to make assumptions about people based on their resting face. But if you smile at somebody, almost always they will smile back. And I feel like you just are able to see a bit more about that person, their personality, and it can really give you a boost. So, yeah, I'm setting everybody out there a little challenge to smile at somebody today or tomorrow who you might not normally smile at and just see what happens. Let the magic happen. Ah. One of the things that we have here is with 35% admitting that happy people are more attractive. Mm. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) It's another benefit to going about smiling. (laughs) Definitely. Oh, definitely. And um, somewhere about sharing and spending time with family and friends. I love being in our family. Yeah, yeah. You know, as human beings... We have very some very basic needs, and they've all come up in this survey. The need for sleep, the need for being with other people, the need for moving our bodies and exercising, and, and the need for nourishing our bodies as well. And, and they all feature quite highly. And what's interesting is, you know, lots of the more expensive luxury pleasures that people might expect would come out on top on a survey like this, they, they don't feature or they feature much much lower down. Um, one interesting thing was that it, the, the research found that um, people from different generations found different things brought them joy. So people who were um, over the age of 45 were much less likely to talk about things like TikToks and Reels, whereas those between the ages of 18 and 29, 35% of them highlighted TikToks and Reels. Um, older generations are much more likely to talk about things like a bright sunny day, walk in the park, um, or you know, meeting up with family and friends. But chocolate actually featured across all generations. That came as one in three, thirty-seven percent of people highlighted chocolate as something that gives them a boost. And and we didn't see the, that differentiation across generations. That was across the board. 
Oh, interesting study, wasn't mm. it? Very, yeah, very much interesting. so. And we all have different ways of what we find, you know, simple things don't cost very much, but you can enjoy those moments. Exactly. And I think so the message, therefore, and what we can all do to be happier is we all as individuals identify what are the simple things in life that really make you happy mm. and then make them non-negotiable. You know, make sure that you put them at the top of your priority list rather than them slipping to the bottom like they often tend to. So whether that is, you know, speaking to a certain person on the phone going for a walk, doing some meditation, you know, having your favourite food on a Saturday morning. Um, make sure you do it. TV medic Dr Zoe Williams encouraging us all to have a spring in our step on Breakfast with Samantha Day a couple of weeks ago. On Tuesday's Wellbeing Weekly, Carrie Overton spoke to 16-year-old Imberhorn student Sophie Harris about her interest in music and how that's led to performing in public. So it really started in primary school in year six. Mm -hmm. um, I did a show and tell uh, one, one afternoon. And one of my teachers saw my potential and um, my primary school used to do a carol concert at St. Swithin's at Christmas time. Mm -hmm. And they asked me to do a solo. And I think from then I realized that actually if I worked at it, I could, I could, um, well, what's the word? make myself better at it fantastic so what did you do you remember what you sang as your solo uh, yeah i sang hallelujah um by leonard cohen oh wow yeah, okay yeah. gosh that's quite a powerful song to yeah. sing <laughs> and were you nervous yeah i was quite nervous but i think i i think i held held my nerves together fantastic. yeah fantastic and so you said it was your teacher then who sort of noticed your potential what made you choose to sing at your show and tell well, I think I've always, I'd always been singing around the house or singing really wherever I went. So I thought, oh, why not? I was practicing the song and I, I just thought, why not show it off? And it obviously paid off. And yeah. So when you say you were all, you always sort of sang around the house and things like that, had you sort of done any formal singing or just enjoyed it? I just really enjoyed it. I thought of it more of just a hobby yeah. and just something I could just do to, I don't know, make me happy, make me smile. Yeah. And so then you sort of took this step to sing. Do you remember what you sang at the show and tell? I think I sang Hallelujah. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so song. then they asked me, because it was kind of a, it's kind of a Christmas-ish song, they yeah. asked me to sing it at, at the church. And had your parents or your family or anyone before sort of said, oh, wow, you're a really amazing singer? Well, I think I normally, I used to keep it to myself. I'd kind of, I'd sing around the house, but I wouldn't necessarily sing in front of my mum so she never really knew until I got offered the opportunity. Mum do you mind if I ask you a question actually is that all right? I'm just putting mum on the mic now. So <laughs> how did you feel when Sophie started singing? Um, well obviously I, when I went to the church at St Swithin's um, and it was absolutely packed she completely brought the house down I have to say proudest moment ever. Were you me. crying? Um, I think I was sitting there and I can remember I went with my friend and I said, can you film it? Mm. Because I think I was probably more no nervous yeah. than Sophie yeah. at the time. But um, just so proud. And afterwards, it was it was just like she was famous. And everyone was saying, you must be so proud. You must be so proud. So that was really, really good. And then obviously then, yeah, that was really the start. But it, it, I did realise her potential from that point, really. So before that had you didn't realize she was that good or no I didn't I had heard her singing obviously like you do and I knew she could sing but I think being 
in St Swithins and in front of so many people to be able to hold her nerve mm. I, I was just so nervous I thought her voice is going to break <laughs> and we'd been practicing and practicing this song um, so I think just the fact that she could just hold her own very difficult song to sing anyway yeah. so it was for me that was wow, wow. that was just a wow moment and then Sophie didn't actually say she then got after that got chosen to play Mary Poppins in the year six school production mm. and again absolutely stole the show so for me that was just wow the proudest mum ever amazing like, absolutely amazing amazing so, yeah. oh do you get stage fright I mean obviously you get a little you know you get a bit shaky but it's all about kind of just the confident side of it you know you just got to push and just think I am capable of it there's right. no need there's no need to be nervous you know? so do you think it's a real mental um it, it, it's all in your mind you've just got to sort of calm yourself down yeah, and believe in just, yourself just take a breathe have a drink you know you know you've been practicing so I think then it's all fine so it's just really backing yourself yeah just just you know a little pep talk in your mind <laughs> yeah like you'll be fine just just keep going so you had this amazing time in year six yeah. burst onto the scene yeah. <laughs> in at St. Swithin's and then as Mary Poppins. I, I mean, are you quite allowed in the spotlight or are you quite a quiet person? I'm really shy, yeah. Are you? <laughs> yeah, very shy. But yeah, mum's nodding as yeah, well. Yeah, She's really yeah. shy. But I think when I sing, that's my one chance I get to kind of not be shy and just kind of show who I am that's through music. That's fantastic. Yeah. So after you'd done all this music in year six... So then take, tell me what happened after that. How did you move forward with it? So I joined uh, Imhorn School after year six and I was given an opportunity to sing at their school summer fair, which is iFest. And I obviously I practised a couple of songs for that. I sung with um, this girl in my year as well and I did a couple of songs. So that kind of was then another performance, obviously another audience to perform to. So that definitely sort of yeah, help helped, move you yeah. forward yeah. And, and and how were the nerves because that was quite was that really quite a big that was yeah quite big, a big gig audience. isn't it yeah that yeah I mean I know I was quite I was quite a little bit more nervous for that than I was in year six mm -hmm. but I just I held it together and just I didn't really think about anyone else that was there I kind yeah. of just close I don't really close my eyes but you kind of close your mind off to everyone else you just yeah sing in the moment and yeah. yeah sort of zone out yeah and you're just out, it's just yeah. you and the song and you ignore the crowd sort of thing yeah yeah and did you sing a duet with your friend or you yeah, yeah. we sung somebody uh, i used to know by ah oh. yes, yes. yeah 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 oh fantastic and what was the response what was the response like i mean obviously everyone was cheering and clapping and yeah it was definitely a nice buzz that you get after you've done it and you know that you've You've got through it. Do you realise you're good at singing? Yeah, and I do. I think it's good to actually realise that actually I am good at something yeah. and it's something that I can work on to even get better at. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I think it's really important. We were saying about, you know, some people, and we've all seen them on The X Factor, <laughs> who come on and, and think they can sing really well but can't. So mm. to know that you've got such a talent is, yeah. is really important. And, you know, Nikki, you were saying that you're... a, a sort of quite a critic and you're, you sort of give her really honest feedback. Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely one of those parents that I wouldn't, if she can't sing something, mm. if I think, oh, that doesn't sound good, she, does, she gets upset with me, but I <laughs> do say to her, 
know that that song isn't for you mm. or and it's only positive yeah um feedback but i will you know i'm not gonna say that she's absolutely great for some some songs she struggles to sing yeah. so is that pitch is it because you seem to have a good range with your yeah, singing i mean sometimes it's just obviously like when you belt Mm. Um, really high notes it's quite difficult yes. so it's sometimes some songs I struggle with either the really high notes or the really low notes mm. Mm. but I'd say since I've been practicing I've definitely improved my range mm. so it's getting easier to hit the notes I was gonna say Sophie does have singing lessons right. at school um, and she does have a the, she's had a new singing teacher who is really all about performance mm. and so Sophie's always had quite a high pitch but now she's been taught mm. how to get to those low notes as well so that's really really improved and just as a performance as well mm. so that's that's has really really helped so you were saying you did ifest in year seven yeah so then tell me what you've done since then or what you're doing with your music now so recently um in around november time i uh, my mum bought me an amp and a microphone for my birthday so i now go and sing in East Grinstead. I busk in East Grinstead. Wow. Um, most weekends. I haven't gone recently because the weather's been so horrible <laughs> and miserable. But I try and go and busk for an hour or two up in, up in the town, which is also as well quite nice because it's performance again. Yeah. Because Gosh. sometimes at school, there's not always the opportunities mm. there or constantly. So mm. I feel like it's quite nice to keep up my performance skills and you know, I meet new people as well when I'm busking and I've had some people follow me on my social media as well. So, so I was going to say, you know, that takes a lot of, well, nerve to be able to stand up and do sing, you know, sing in the streets. What sort of response do you get from people while you're busking? So I often get, obviously I get nice donations, which is nice, <laughs> obviously, but... Um, but no, I get people come past, they give me a thumbs up or they're like, you're really good. Even people in their cars, people like roll down their windows to listen, which is really nice. And Fantastic. Yeah. You know, what made you decide to start busking? So I think um, linking to social media, I, I was, I'm always on TikTok and mm -hmm. I see a lot of people on TikTok, they post themselves busking. Right. And I just thought actually it would be a good opportunity for me to start something like that. Um, you know, share my talent with the world, yeah. as it were. So you have a TikTok account. So yeah. so is that specifically for your music? Um, yeah, I post um, a lot of uh, singing videos on there. One of my um, one of my videos from around Christmas time got one point one million views. <gasps> wow, which is crazy! But, um, but yeah, so I mainly post myself singing on there, and I'm just trying to get noticed by the right people. Do you have to do something special to get it on people's recommended? So I put a lot of like hashtags yeah. on my videos, so things like just singing and like okay. do you at me and things like that, yeah. like random, yeah. So so that it hopefully lands. And on how there. did you feel when you got over a million likes? I was I was really excited <laughs> because I've tried for ages to post things on TikTok and get them noticed. And for it to actually finally happen was like wow because it really did kind of blow up overnight. I remember talking to mum and um. I was like, oh my God, mum, my, my video's got 300 likes. What's going on? And then 300 obviously increased to quite a few. <laughs> so, wow. So, yeah. And what song were you singing then? I was singing Skyfall. Okay. By Adele, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I mean, that, I just can't imagine having over a million people. Did mm. you get loads of nice comments as yeah, well? Yeah, loads of nice comments, yeah. 
So what next with you, with your singing? Was this, you know, you, you're doing your GCSEs now. Mm-hmm. Um, are you going to be doing music for A-level? Yeah, I really want to do music for A-levels along with business and English literature. Fantastic. Or, yeah. And then what's the, what's the dream longer term? Well, I'd, I'm starting to write my music at the minute, right. so I'd love to release that soon yeah. and hopefully share my music with the world. And yeah. Fantastic. So were you ever tempted to go on anything like X Factor or anything like that? Actually, yeah, I would really like to apply for The Voice or right. Britain's Got Talent, but I think Britain's Got Talent is more... It's not necessarily for singing anymore. No, necessarily, not necessarily. So. Unless you've got a dog you can train. Yeah. <laughs> or a magic trick yeah. you can do alongside it. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. But the voice would be amazing. Yeah, I'd love to go on that soon. If there's one bit of sort of uh, well-being advice you could give to people, what would it be? What would your top tip be? I think find a hobby or a passion that you enjoy and just stick with it. And, mm. you know, when you're feeling down find something that you can turn to to maybe brighten your mood mm. and do you find that that's what your music does for yeah, you yeah 100 percent. whenever I'm feeling a bit stressed or anxious I just sing and it's kind of it kind of, it's kind of all goes away yeah to some extent Sophie Harris in conversation with Carrie Overton you can listen to the whole interview by clicking on listen again under the on-air menu on our website at meridianfm.com and if you'd like to follow Sophie, she's on TikTok at underscore Sophie Ann Harris X. That's underscore Sophie Ann Harris X. And Ann is spelled A-double-N. We'll post a link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. On his Good Afternoon show on Friday, Norman Wong found out about the perfect lullaby. It's been created by scientists in collaboration with music producer Silky. Norman spoke to Silky and Liz Cooper, the founder of the British Academy of Sound Therapy. So sound therapy is the way to use sound in a conscious way to affect mind, body and emotions. And how did the Lullaby Project come about? And does the lullaby have a title? Uh, yep, the lullaby is called Drift. And Aldi, their, their baby and toddler range, Mamia, they got in touch with us and said, would you like to create the ultimate lullaby to help get little ones to sleep? And so we rose to the challenge. Silky, you've worked with some big artists, including Mabel, Craig David and Ray Black. How did you go about producing the lullaby and what inspired you? So it was, yeah, it was a really interesting process. I think the first thing I quickly realized was that, you know, when you make a pop record or a soul record, the primary focus is like getting the coolest melody, lyric, harmony, something catchy, something that, you know, makes people want to dance. Whereas this had to be approached, you know, with science as the priority and obviously the the desired outcome of getting people relaxed and in a sleepy state approaching it not like a musician is really unconventional we took a lot of inspiration from pink floyd dark side of the moon which would sound you know like wow how um but there are specific tracks like speak to me on the run and time where they create this incredible soundscape that takes you on a journey um using fan noises and loads of real world sounds and we sort of used, took inspiration from that to be the foundation of this piece. 
Now, the lullaby is an instrumental. Is there any reason why vocals weren't included? Well, yes, we decided that this is, a, if you like, a 21st century version of a lullaby. And so, of course, it's really important for as a bonding process for parents to spend time and sing with their children or to their children. There's no doubt about that. So we didn't want to replace the, the ancient use of the, uh, the lullaby but what we wanted to do is if you put vocals into a piece, it can distract you um, and also vocals that aren't familiar. So, you know, normally mum or dad or caregiver would maybe sing to the, the child. Uh, so we, we made a conscious decision to take the vocals out, but to replace it with all these lovely sonic vitamins that have been shown to, to help you to sleep. Because a baby spends nine months in the womb listening to mother's heartbeat, I wondered if that influenced the tempo and was, was the sound of water influential too? Absolutely. He went hunting for all these beautiful sounds and our brief really when we talked about the original sound design was to create this womb-like kind of environment to help to encourage safety and calm. And so he put a, a heartbeat pulse sound at 50 BPM which is obviously a very relaxed heart rate across the back of the whole piece. And then there were also some lovely uh, white noisy and watery sounds that helped to in invite that sort of womb-like soundscape experience. The lullaby is about five and a half minutes long. Is that all it would take to send you, your baby off to sleep? <laughs> it depends. It, so the research that we did at the British Academy of Sound Therapy showed that on average, people take tend to take longer to go to sleep than they do to improve their mood state, for example. So if we were creating a piece to uplift, it might may only be a couple of minutes long. But to actually relax, you need to have a piece that's at least five minutes long. And that's because it's due to something called the entrainment principle, which is how the brain and the body respond to sound over a period of time. So we knew the piece had to be over five minutes and, and uh, Silky made it sort of, I think, five minutes, 20 or thereabouts. And that would encourage, I mean, obviously nothing's guaranteed, but we're giving everybody a really good chance. And uh, when it was tested out at Aldi, so we, we sent the piece to them, the draft, the fight, one of the final drafts, really, just to have a listen. And they came back and said that, you know, everybody in the office was so relaxed. So it also works on adults. Well, I, I have listened to the, the track, The Lullaby, and uh, you're absolutely right. It is very relaxing. And, and that was a question I wanted to ask you. With, with more people suffering from sleep disorder, I was wondering if The Lullaby would be helpful to them too. Absolutely. I mean, Silky will tell you a little, his own experience of the, the piece when he was making it. Whilst making the piece, me and Liz worked across Zoom. And at one point, whilst we was kind of going over a draft, she, she thought I was looking down at my phone. And after a while, she realized I'd fallen asleep myself. So it might work a bit too well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, don't, don't operate heavy machinery while listening yeah. to this track. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I best they don't listen to it in the car. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Silky and Liz, for joining us today. I'm sure there's lots of mums keen to get a copy of Driven. And how can they get a copy of it? So if you go to whatever streaming platform you use, whether that be Spotify or apple go to s search s-i-l-l-k-e-y 
Drift featuring Liz Cooper, L-Y-Z. You'll find it there. And please let us know how you get on with it. Silky and Liz Cooper talking there to Norman Wong about the new lullaby they've created. If you'd like to take a listen, you can find the track called Drift on your favourite streaming platform. And that's it for the latest edition. We've got all the information on the features you've heard today on Twitter at SundayReview107 or on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. I'll be back on air next Sunday morning from 10am on 107 Meridian FM or on meridianfm.com or you can download the latest podcast. Until then, take care and have a great week ahead.